Support for AHLA comes from Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. Pinnacle works with hospitals, health systems, ambulatory surgery centers, physician groups, law firms, and other healthcare organizations. Their team consists of experts in the area of compliance, audit and risk mitigation, medical coding, compensation and business valuation, strategy and operations consulting, and transaction support. Learn more about Pinnacle at www.askphc.com. Good day. I'm Jennifer Cottrell, CFO and COO of Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. This podcast is the first in a series of three episodes exploring the career journeys of women leaders in the healthcare industry. We'll discuss their career trajectories, lessons learned, and advice for women leaders. This podcast is brought to you by the AHLA Women's Leadership Council, which promotes the engagement of women AHLA members and supports and advocates for career advancement and representation of women in healthcare leadership positions. The council is comprised of 15 AHLA members from diverse practice areas, geography, and expertise. The council provides a forum for networking, advice, and mentorship, and coordinates and develops educational content of interest to AHLA women members. This podcast series was planned in celebration of International Women's Day, Tuesday, March 8th, and is proudly sponsored by Pinnacle Healthcare Consulting. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mindy Estes, President and CEO of St. Luke's Health System and 2020 Chair of the American Hospital Association. Dr. Estes is a board-certified neurologist and neuropathologist. In 2020, Modern Healthcare recognized Dr. Estes on its prestigious list of the 100 most influential people in healthcare, as well as among the 50 most influential clinical executives. Since 2012, she has consistently been named to Becker's Hospital Review List of Leaders to Know, including Women Hospital and Health System Leaders to Know, and Physician Leaders of Hospitals and Health Systems. Welcome, Dr. Estes. Thank you. So let's start by, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself. Well, I'm Mindy Estes, and uh, I am the president and CEO of the St. Louis Health System in Kansas City. Um, I um, uh, am an army brat, so I grew up all over uh, the world uh, during my uh, childhood, and I'm an only only child. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I think really learned a, a lot during that time. One is just to appreciate other cultures, and two, to be flexible, which I think has uh, helped me in my uh, career as I have uh, gone forward. Um, I had every intention of being an orchestral musician. I uh, uh, played the piano and the bassoon all through uh, all through my uh, my uh, junior high and high school career and then went on to college to study music uh, where I really realized that you know music is uh, uh, 90% hard work and 10% talent and if you don't have that full 10% talent you can't work the rest of the uh, of of that uh, of that 10%. So uh, my dad who was a wise man said to me you know do something you can make a living at. Yes. So I, uh, I thought long and hard and I really, then I said to him, you know, well, I, I really would like to study Russian and Russian studies. Now you have wow. to realize my dad uh, was a career military officer and this was just after the Cold War and he was really having none of that. And he said, I'm not sure you mm. can make a living as a Russian scholar. 
Um, and I'll leave that to our audience to decide if that's true or not. So then I yeah. thought, well, I like biology. So I decided I would um, take all of the courses in pre-med and ultimately go to medical school, which is uh, what, what uh, I did and then uh, went on to study both neurology and neuropathology. Well, wow, that is a fascinating background. Thank you very much for sharing. So, so tell us about your, your career path um, and, and what, what led you to your current role? Well, you know, when I was in medical school in, in the 1970s, uh, you know, most women uh, were expected and encouraged to study pediatrics. And uh, I went to the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, and it was an interesting time. There were 200 people in my medical school class, 50 of whom were women. The class before oh. mine had two women. The class after mine had two women. Oh, so we were a bit of, a, of an anomaly. Not I'm, prob very much I'm so. probably too many women to all go into pediatrics. Uh, so, you know, as often happens, you are influenced by a mentor. And the chair of neurology was a gentleman named Dr. John Calverly, who really made neuroscience and neurology uh, come, uh, come to life. And as a result, uh, I then went on to study neurology and, uh, and neuropathology because I, I liked the idea of being a consultant, which you are when you're a neuropathologist as well as an educator. So I did that and I spent the first, uh, you know, 15 or so years of my career practicing neurology and neuropathology, uh, largely at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and I was encouraged by a number of men who were mentors of mine to take on uh, increasing leadership roles. My first leadership role was chair of the library committee. And, uh, you know, what I learned as you as you take on progressive leadership opportunities is that you learn something from every opportunity that you have. You learn how to chair a meeting. You learn mm -hmm. how not to chair a meeting. You <laughs> learn how to, to uh, bring um, uh, different voices to the table. And so no matter how small those steps are, uh, there's something uh, to uh, be learned. And so I was really very fortunate to have a number of opportunities uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, ultimately, I became the associate chief of staff uh, for, it was about a 700 physician group then, which was really right. human resources for doctors. Um, and from there, I went on to uh, get an MBA and really began to pursue the administrative side of, uh, of uh, medicine. Uh, I practiced medicine um, uh, at the same time because, uh, you know, I think it was important to, for your credibility to be right. seen that you understand what's on the front line. So that's, right. how, I, uh, that's how I got started. Wow, that's great. What, so what... Um... Through that, and you mentioned some mentors um, that you've had along your way. Are there are there any other role models who have have impacted your career? Well, you know, I've had I've had a number of uh, of mentors uh, in my uh, in my career, and uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to um, to learn from uh, each one of them. And you know, I think when you when you're looking at role models who who impact uh, your career, it's it's interesting. You know, they just don't they just don't drop into your lap. You really begin uh, to look for people who you think are not only successful, but you are uh, you're impressed 
obsessed with how they go about their practice of medicine, right. how they go about their their lives, how they go about interacting with uh, with other people. And so I, yeah. I was fortunate at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, uh, Dr. Joe Hahn, who was the uh, chair of neurosurgery, and Dr. Ralph Straffen, who was the chief of staff of the Cleveland Clinic for a long time, uh, a, a um, uh, urologic surgeon, both sort of took me under uh, under their wing, and you know I learned a tremendous amount from them, and mostly I learned you know how to how to navigate uh, complex situations and how to really appreciate you know the nuances of an organization because you know as you have more leadership responsibility it's it's really um, reading the body language if you will of the entire organization when to push. Right when to step back, when to understand that the organization needs a deep breath. And uh, those, those two, uh, two guys uh, uh, really taught me uh, how to do that because they did it so well. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So maybe it was uh, those two individuals or maybe others. What, what would you say is the most valuable piece of advice or pieces of advice that you have received um, uh, in your career? You know, I think it's often difficult to distill down to just uh, to just one piece of advice, but uh, uh, I had the opportunity to be uh, senior vice president uh, of medical affairs and chief of staff at the Metro Health system in uh, Cleveland, uh, which is a large uh, city county uh, hospital in, in Cleveland. And uh, the CEO is a gentleman named Terry White. Um, and under his leadership, I really you know, learned an enormous amount, but there are two things that uh, he told me that have stuck with me. And they're pieces of advice that I still use and they're pieces of advice that I still share with uh, my colleagues. Uh, the first is uh, hug the thing that scares you the most. Uh, you know, this notion that you need to keep it close to you so you can learn from uh, an experience or from a person um, and until it's not scary anymore. And oftentimes, you know, that really boils down to embracing different viewpoints and to mm. recognizing that dissenting voices are as important, if not more important than the voices uh, uh, in agreement. But, you know, at the end of the day, certainly from a leadership team perspective, we all have to sing off the same song sheet once we, uh, once we leave, because there is one thing that I have learned that uh, employees in large organizations know instantly if leadership is not in agreement. That is so and I think true. This, the second thing that he, uh, that he, uh, um, shared with me that has stuck with me is never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Hmm. And, you know, I think all of us and particularly in healthcare where, you know, we strive for perfection because obviously people's lives depend on our abilities to get it right and get it right all the time. But certainly as we're, as we're making decisions, as we're evaluating strategies, you know, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good really enables us, I think, to be freed um, to consider, you know, all kinds of possibilities and really allows you to be more innovative and to chart perhaps a course that, um, you know, has, uh, has, has not been as tried and true as the one you thought you were going to do. I, I will, uh, I'd like to adopt both of those. So I, I love that hug the thing that scares you the most, because 
Um, I mean, that's all throughout life, right? Mm-hmm. Not only in your professional career, but in life. And uh, and again, never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. What great pieces of, pieces of advice that you received there. Um, so tell us, um, tell us about an important experience that has impacted your career or, or lesson that you have learned. Well, you know, I've, I've uh, been doing this a long time and I've <laughs> had the opportunity to learn a, a lot of lessons. And I think, you know, oftentimes uh, when you come up short, is when you learn the most. When mm. everything is going well, um, you know there there's certainly learnings there, and there's certainly um, lessons that you can take away. But when things don't go well, or when things uh, don't happen the way you think they should, is when you learn. And one that I I might relate is is really you know it's this notion of sometimes of happiness is not getting what you want. Mm. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Cleveland Clinic as the associate chief uh, of staff and enjoyed my time, um, learned all about uh, multi-specialty group practices. Uh, really, I, I thought, learned how to navigate both the human resource and operational side and thought I was ready to be chief of staff uh, when that, uh, when that uh, opportunity arose. Uh, you know, I was considered, I was not uh, selected. I Mm. recall vividly at the time that I didn't really understand the reasons as to why that would have have been the case. And I was quite disappointed. Um, But nonetheless, uh, you know, in retrospect, it really was the best thing that could have happened to me Mm. because it enabled me to go do something different and to think about my career in a different way. And, you know, one of the things, uh, another piece of advice from from Mr. White that I think is applicable in this sort of situation is, you know, when you get to the end of a career, you don't want to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I wish I had taken more risk. Mm. Um, You know, as as you and I have talked previously, a career um, is not linear. It right. really, right. in many respects, is like a sailboat race where, where you go in a direction, something changes, and you have to be ready to tack tap back, <laughs> tap back into a different direction. And right. sometimes, you know, you may feel you're losing a little bit of ground right. as you're right. as you're tacking. But not becoming the chief of staff of the Cleveland Clinic enabled me to go to Metro Health, enabled me then to have progressive responsibilities as I came back to the Cleveland Clinic to run Cleveland Clinic Florida and really have the opportunity to be a CEO um, at multiple organizations. So that was, uh, you know, an experience that at the time was, uh, I thought about the most awful thing professionally that could happen to me, but in retrospect was really the best. Yeah. And I love that analogy of, uh, of, a sailboat, right? Tacking in the wind. And um, uh, my dad is a sailor. And, and it's interesting because I remember as a child, as you went, you know, against the wind and what a struggle that was, right? And yet somehow, sometimes you had to do that in order to, to get and navigate to that next place. And uh, again, what a perfect analogy of, of sometimes those struggles, um, oftentimes, especially, you know, in um, I have children, uh, they say failures. And I said, no, 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 a failure is just an opportunity, right? Um, and so how you can learn from that. So wonderful, wonderful stories there. Well, and you know, that it just, it just highlights that there is 
sort of no perfect time right. to right. make a change or to take on different responsibilities. And I think sometimes, and, and you mentioned your children, I think um, professional women um, certainly have often multiple layers of responsibility, mm. not only in mm. the workplace, but, but at home. And I think sometimes when an opportunity presents itself, our first thought is, well, this isn't the best time for right. me, <laughs> right. or a right. whole variety of, of reasons. Of, of yeah. reasons. Um, but, you know, I think you have to step back and, and say, you know, it may not be the best time, but, but is this something that um, I can learn from? Is this mm. something I'm qualified to do? Is this something that I want to do? And if so, then how can I, how can I make it work? Right. Uh, what support do I need to do that? Because I do think, you know, a career is a series of, of responsibilities as well, and a series right. of steps, some of them small, some of them big, and many of them sort of a leap of faith. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, it's those risks, right? Oftentimes we are, we, we are faced with those risks and, um, and, and taking those risks really does help to move your career along. It does. How would, how would you describe yourself as a leader? You know, I, I've been asked that many times. And, um, you know, I think the word that I might use is courageous. Um, but I would go back really to the Latin root because the word courageous comes from the Latin root core, mm. C-O-R, which means heart. And so I try to live and work um, with both courage and heart. I think sometimes people believe that courage is, you know, putting your nickel down, making difficult decisions, moving um, in a path that, that uh, um, often has inherent risk. And certainly that's part of it. But I think it's the heart part that really right. is, uh, is most important in that word, uh, courageous. Are you, are you recognizing that particularly in what we do in healthcare, you know, the mission of caring for patients and caring for our community is at the core of everything we do. And it is a privilege to do that. And we care for people at their most vulnerable. Mm. They tell us yeah. things they would not tell anybody else. Right. And I think, you know, we really need to always return to that touchstone of why we do what we do. And when you do that, it then makes those decisions much easier if you recognize how does it impact our patients, our teams, and our communities. You, so you've alluded a little bit to my next question, which is, um, what do you think are, are those soft skills? And I, and I love that, again, that reference of the heart in it. You know, I, I always express to, um, uh, to my colleagues, you know, of courteous and kindness, right? That we want to be courteous and kind. Um, um, but what, what other soft skills would you say that you feel are important? I mean, I think there are a number of soft skills, and one uh, that I will highlight uh, to start with is um, one that I think um, 
many of us have uh, experienced over and over during the last uh, two plus years of this pandemic. And that's the notion of uh, leading with uh, imperfect uh, information. You know, uh, all of us in large organizations and those of us in healthcare in particular, you know, we're planners and we like to have uh, committees to to think about what our next step is. And when we think about what our next step is, then we like to pilot something and our pilots often go way too long. And then we think, well, we probably ought to pilot it again in a different setting. Um, and, you know, by the time that's happened, you know, we are 12 months into uh, into uh, the, the project. But, you know, throughout the, the crisis, you know, the pandemic um, did not give us the luxury of, uh, of time. time. Yeah. And it really wasn't about making decisions easily, but making the decisions um, uh, with the information that you have. And knowing that you may need to make a new and very possibly different decision tomorrow or the next day. And, and I think that's scary for those of us who, who really like to analyze data and, do, and do, uh, do test runs. And it oftentimes brings together groups of people who don't often talk to each other very often. Yeah. And I just give a, 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 an example. We stood up um, our testing um, facilities sort of overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to do COVID testing in the in the community, and of course we did it outside of the hospital because we didn't want to be bringing people into the hospital setting who might be COVID positive. So we stood it up. We stood it up well. We had all of the staff. We had all of the PPE. We we uh, were ready to go. And then we realized that um, you know we needed a tent because it rains in Kansas City. Yep. Simple so thing, the next right? day, the next day we had a tent. Then about three days later, we realized that we didn't necessarily have all the right people there. But we just oh. made these changes on on the fly, and I and right. I think that's one of the lessons of the pandemic that I hope uh, we will continue. That you know we hmm. can make good decisions with imperfect information right. and and tweak them as we need to going forward. So I think that's definitely a soft skill that has, has been highlighted. Uh, you know, another one I might mention is just um, transparency and communication. Um, yeah. You know, as leaders, uh, you know, the tone in an organization, I think, does come from the top. And I think we have to be as committed to our employees as they are to our patients and to our organization. And so you mentioned kindness. We're very proud at St. Luke's of our culture of kindness mm. and our culture of transparency. Um, and, and, you know, again, we try to over communicate and it was really highlighted during the pandemic, recognizing that we had to communicate in all kinds of different ways, whether it was videos, whether it was updates on a daily basis, sometimes a twice daily basis for folks to read. And so I can't overemphasize, and it is a bit of a soft skill of communicating and recognizing that people get information in different ways. Right. And sometimes right. how we wish to give it to them is not the best way for them to receive it. And, mm. and finally, I think listening, and it's listening to understand, not to act. 
you know, when you're busy and you're in a hurry, you're listening, and then sometimes you're listening to take an action, right. but you really need to, to stop and listen to understand and ask questions to further understand. Right. The what if and tell me more, right? <laughs> Correct. And not to be afraid to change your mind if in fact the data and the, the conversations suggest that the path you're going down is going to have more unintended consequences than positive consequences. Than positive, yes, absolutely. So in the uh, last few moments here of our discussion, um, I'd, love you to, I'd love for you to share with me something that, something that you're proud of. Well, you know, this uh, at, at St. Luke's, this is my third opportunity to um, to be CEO and to lead uh, an organization. I was at Cleveland Clinic Florida and then at Fletcher Allen Healthcare, which is now the University of Vermont Health System. And in each of these three organizations, you know, what I have been most proud of is the tremendous expertise uh, compassion, kindness, and competence of, of mm. our teams. You know, healthcare is a team sport, and I've really been most proud that everywhere I've been, you know, I feel like our teams have uh, embraced the mission that I talked about earlier, which is, is doing the best we can for our patients. Um, and recognizing that uh, they uh, they depend on us, and and so I I've been most uh, I've been most proud of that, and I've been very privileged to have the opportunity to do that in a variety of uh, of different settings. But you know I think um, in healthcare uh, again, if we if we recognize why we're doing what we're doing, and and always come back to that, then you know the rest of it falls uh, falls into place. And yeah. you know one of my jobs as a CEO is really to be at that you know thirty fifty thousand foot level to look forward, so that many of our teams can look down and focus on the business of care on a, a daily basis. And I'm really most proud of all the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. That's wonderful. Dr. Essis, any, any final comments that you'd like to share with our audience today? Well, I might just share, since this is the uh, Healthcare um, Lawyers uh, Association, that um, someone once told me I was an FOL, um, which I have always wanted a t-shirt. Um, and it basically said, friend of legal. Because I have it. learned in in um, my my stops in in multiple organizations and as a, a CEO, you know that the partnership of a CEO and the general counsel or chief legal officer is really one of the most uh, important. You know, as you rise in an organization, uh, the millipore filter that happens in terms of information that comes to you. Um, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And one of the things that I've always been able to depend on is to know that my chief legal officer won't necessarily tell me what I want to hear, but will tell me what I need to hear and mm. will tell me what is possible and what's not possible and how yeah. we can navigate through it. And so I just want our audience to know how much I appreciate the work that all of them uh, do on, on behalf of uh, the field of healthcare in general. Thank you. That is wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Estes. It has been an absolute pl pleasure. 
You're very welcome. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.